Section 64 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 47. Louis Fourteenth and Religion. Part 5. He lived fifteen years longer, occupied during the interval of rest which the peace of the Church restored to Port-Royal, in directing and fortifying souls. He published, one after another, the volumes of his translation of the Bible, with expositions, or éclaircissements, which had been required by the examiners. In 1679 the renewal of the king's severities compelled him to retire completely to Pomponne. On the 3rd of January, 1684, at seventy-one years of age, he felt ill and went to bed. He died next day without being taken by surprise, as regarded either his affairs or his soul, by so speedy an end. Quote, o blessed flames of purgatory he said as he breathed his last he had requested to be buried at port royal des champs he was borne thither at night the cold was intense and the roads were covered with snow the carriages were escorted by men carrying torches the nuns looked a moment upon the face of the saintly director whom they had not seen for many years and then he was lowered into his grave Quote, needs hide in earth what is but earth said mother angelica de saint jean in deep accents and a lowly voice and returned to nothingness what in itself is but nothing she was nevertheless heartbroken and tarried only for this pious duty to pass away in her turn quote, it is time to give up my veil to him from whom i received it said she a fortnight after the death of m de sacy she expired at port royal just proceeding to the tomb her brother m de luzancy who breathed his last at pomponne where he had lived with m de sacy i confess said the inconsolable fontaine that when i saw this brother and sister stricken with death by that of m de sacy i blushed i who thought i had always loved him not to follow him like them and i became consequently exasperated with myself for loving so little in comparison with those persons whose love had been strong as death the human heart avenges itself for the tortures men pretentiously inflict upon it. The disciples of saint Cyran thought to stifle in their souls all earthly affections, and they died of grief on losing those they loved. Quote, their life ebbed away in those depths of tears, as M. Vinet has said. The great Port-Royal was dead with M. de Sacy and Mother Angelica de Saint-Jean, faithful and modest imitators of their illustrious predecessors. The austere virtue and the pious severance from the world existed still in the house in the fields, under the direction of Duguet. The persecution, too, continued, persistent and noiseless. The king had given the direction of his conscience to the Jesuits. From Father Lachaise, moderate and prudent, he had passed to Father Le Tellier, violent and perfidious. Furthermore, the long persistence of the Jansenists in their obstinacy, their freedom of thought which infringed the unity so dear to Louis the Fourteenth, displeased the monarch, absolute even in his hour of humiliation and defeat. The property of Port-Royal was seized, and Cardinal de Noailles, well disposed at bottom towards the Jansenists, but so feeble in character that determination disgusted him as if it were a personal insult, ended by once more forbidding the nuns the sacraments. The house in the fields was suppressed and its title merged in that of Port-Royal in Paris, for some time past replenished with submissive nuns. Madame de Chateau-Renaud, the new abbess, went to take possession. The daughters of Mother Angelica protested, but without violence, as she would have done in their place. On the 29th of October, 1709, after prime, Father Letellier having told the king that quote, Madame de Chateau-Renaud dared not to go to Port-Royal-des-Champs, being convinced that those headstrong, disobedient, and rebellious daughters would laugh at the king's decree, and that unless his majesty would be pleased to give precise orders to disperse them, it would never be possible to carry it out. The king, being pressed in this way, sent his orders to M. d'Argenson, lieutenant of police. 
He appeared at Port-Royal with a commissary and two exons. He asked for the prioress. She was at church. When service was over, he summoned all the nuns. One, old and very paralytic, was missing. Quote, Let her be brought, said M. d'Argenson. His Majesty's orders are, he continued, that you break up this assemblage, never to meet again. It is your general dispersal that I announce to you. You are allowed but three hours to break up. Quote, we are ready to obey, sir, said the mother prioress. Half an hour is more than sufficient for us to say our last good-bye, and take with us a breviary, a Bible, and our regulations. And when he asked her whither she meant to go, quote, sir, the moment our community is broken up and dispersed, it is indifferent to me in what place I may be personally, since I hope to find God wherever I shall be. They got into carriages, receiving one after another the farewell and blessing of the mother prioress, who was the last to depart. Remaining firm to the end, there were two and twenty, the youngest fifty years old. They all died in the convents to which they were taken. A seizure was at once made of all papers and books left in the cells. Cardinal Noailles did not interfere. M. de Saint-Cyran had depicted him by anticipation, when he said that the weak were more to be feared than the wicked. He was complaining one day of his differences with his bishops. Quote, "'What can you expect, Monseigneur?' laughingly said a lady well disposed to the Jansenists. God is just, it is the stones of Port-Royal tumbling upon your head. The tombs were destroyed, some coffins were carried to a distance, others left and profaned. The plough passed over the ruins, the hatred of the enemies of Port-Royal was satiated. A few of the faithful, preserving in their hearts the ardent faith of M. de Saint-Cyran, narrowed, however, and absorbed by obstinate resistance. A few theologians dying in exile, and leaving in Holland a succession of bishops detached from the Roman Church. This was all that remained of one of the noblest attempts ever made by the human soul to rise, here below, above that which is permitted by human nature. Virtues of the utmost force, Christianity zealously pushed to its extremest limits, and the most invincible courage, sustained the Jansenists in a conscientious struggle against spiritual oppression. Its life died out, little by little, amongst the dispersed members. The Catholic Church suffered therefrom in its innermost sanctuary. Quote, the Catholic religion would only be more neglected if there were no more religionists, said Vauban in his memoir in favor of the Protestants. It was the same as regarded the Jansenists. The Jesuits and Louis Fourteenth, in their ignorant passion for unity and uniformity, had not comprehended that great principle of healthy freedom and sound justice of which the scientific soldier had a glimmering. The insurrection of the Camisards in the Cévennes had been entirely of a popular character. The Jansenists had penitents amongst the great of this world, though none properly belonged to them or retired to their convents or their solitudes. It was the great French burgessdom, issue for the most part of the magistracy, which supplied their most fervent associates. Fenelon and Madame Guillon founded their little church at court amongst the great lords, and many remained faithful to them till death. The spiritual letters of Fenelon, models of wisdom, pious tact, moderation and knowledge of the human heart are nearly all addressed to persons engaged in the life and the offices of the court exposed to all the temptations of the world it is no longer the desert of the penitents of port royal or the strict cloister of mother angelica fenelon is for only inward restrictions and an abstention purely spiritual from afar and in his retreat at cambrai he watches over his faithful flock with a tender preoccupation which does not make him overlook the duties of their position Quote, Take as penance from your sins, he wrote, the disagreeable liabilities of the position you are in. The very hindrances which seem injurious to our advancement in piety turn to our profit, provided that we do what depends on ourselves. Fail not in any of your duties towards the court, as regards your office and the proprieties, but be not anxious for posts which awaken ambition. Such are, with their discreet tolerance, the teachings of Fenelon, adapted for the guidance of the dukes of Beauvilliers and Chevreuse, and of the duke of Burgundy himself. 
he went much further, and on less safe a road when he was living at court under the influence of Madame Guillon. A widow and still young, gifted with an ardent spirit and a lofty and subtle mind, Madame Guillon had imagined in her mystical enthusiasm a theory of pure love, very analogous fundamentally, if not in its practical consequences, to the doctrines taught shortly before by a Spanish priest named Molino, condemned by the court of Rome in 1687. It was about the same time that Madame Guillon went to Paris with her book on the moyen court et facile de faire l'oraison du coeur, or short and easy method of making a horizon with the heart. Prayer, according to this holy mystical teaching, loses the character of supplication or intercession to become the simple silence of a soul absorbed in God. Quote, Why are not simple folks so taught, she said, shepherds keeping their flocks would have the spirit of the old anchorites, and laborers, whilst driving the plough, would talk happily with God, all vice would be banished in a little while, and the kingdom of God would be realized on earth. It was a far cry from the sanguinary struggle against sin and the armed Christianity of the Jansenists. The sublime and specious visions of Madame Guillon fascinated lofty and gentle souls. The Duchess of Charot, daughter of Fouquet, Mesdames de Beauvilliers, de Chevreuse, de Mortemar, daughters of Colbert and their pious husbands, were the first to be chained to her feet. Fenelon, at that time preceptor to the children of France, or royal family, saw her, admired her, and became imbued with her doctrines. She was for a while admitted to the intimacy of Madame de Maintenon. It was for this little nucleus of faithful friends that she wrote her book of torrents. The human soul is a torrent which returns to its source in God, who lives in perfect repose, and who would fain give it to those who are his. The Christian soul has nothing more that is its, neither will nor desire. It has God for soul. He is its principle of life. Quote, in this way there is nothing extraordinary, no visions, no ecstasies, no entrancements. The way is simple, pure, and plain. There the soul sees nothing but in God, as God sees himself and with his eyes. End quote. With less vagueness, and quite as mystically, Fenelon defined the sublime love taught by Madame Guillon in the following maxim, afterwards condemned at Rome, quote, There is an habitual state of love of God which is pure charity, without any taint of the motive of self-interest. Neither fear of punishment nor desire of reward have any longer part in this love. God is loved not for the merit or the perfection or the happiness to be found in loving him, end quote. What singular seductiveness in those theories of pure love which were taught at the court of Louis the Fourteenth by his grandchildren's preceptor at a woman's instigation, and zealously preached fifty years afterwards by President of New Jersey College, Jonathan Edwards, in the cold and austere atmosphere of New England. Led away by the generous enthusiasm of his soul, Fenelon had not probed the dangers of his new doctrine. The gospel and church of Christ, whilst preaching the love of God, had strongly maintained the fact of human individuality and responsibility the theory of mere or pure love absorbing the soul in god put an end to repentance effort to withstand evil and the need of a redeemer bossuet was not deceived the elevation of his mind combined with strong common sense caused him to see through all the veils of the mysticism madame guillon had submitted her books to him he disapproved of them at first quietly then formally after a thorough examination in conjunction with two other doctors madame guillon retired to a monastery of meaux she soon returned to Paris, and her believers rallied round her. Bossuet, in his anger, no longer held his hand. Madame Guillon was shut up first at Vincennes, and then in the Bastille. She remained seven years in prison, and ended by retiring to Nirbois, where she died in 1717, still absorbed in her holy and vague reveries, praying no more inasmuch as she possessed God, quote, a submissive daughter, however, of the Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman Church, having and desiring to admit no other opinion but its. End quote, as she says in her will. 
Bourdaloo calls mere or pure love, quote, a bare faith, which has for its object no verity of the Gospels, no mystery of Jesus Christ's, no attribute of God's, nothing whatever, unless it be in a word God, end quote. In the presence of death, on the approach of the awful realities of eternity, Madame Guillaume no doubt felt the want of a more simple faith in the mighty and living God. Fenelot had not waited so long to surrender. The instinct of the pious and vigorous souls of the seventeenth century had not allowed them to go astray. There was little talk of pantheism, which had spread considerably in the sixteenth century, but there had been a presentiment of the dangers lurking behind the doctrines of Madame Guillon bossuet that great and noble type of the finest period of the catholic church in france made the mistake of pushing his victory too far fenelon a young priest when the great bishop of meaux was already in his zenith had preserved towards him a profound affection and a deep respect we are by anticipation agreed however you may decide he wrote to him on the twenty eighth of july sixteen ninety four it will be no specious submission but a sincere conviction though that which i suppose myself to have read should appear to me clearer than that two and two make four I should consider it still less clear than my obligation to mistrust all my lights, and to prefer before them those of a bishop such as you. You have only to give me my lesson in writing, provided that you wrote me precisely what is the doctrine of the church, and what are the articles in which I have slipped, I would tie myself down inviolably to that rule." Bossuet required more. He wanted Fenelon, recently promoted to the Archbishopric of Cambrai, to approve of the book he was preparing on Etat d'Oraison, or States of Horizon, and explicitly to condemn the works of Madame Guillon. Fenelon refused with generous indignation. Quote, so it is to secure my own reputation, he writes to Madame de Maintenon in 1696, that I am wanted to subscribe that a lady, my friend, would plainly deserve to be burned with all her writings, for an execrable form of spirituality, which is the only bond of our friendship. I tell you, madame, I would burn my friend with my own hands, and I would burn myself joyfully, rather than let the church be imperilled. But here is a poor captive woman, overwhelmed with sorrows, there is none to defend her, none to excuse her, they are always afraid to do so. I maintain that this stroke of the pen, given by me against my conscience, from a cowardly policy, would render me forever infamous and unworthy of my ministry and my position." Fenelon no longer submitted his reason and his conduct, then, to the judgment of Bossuet. He recognized in him an adversary, but he still spoke of him with profound veneration. Quote, "'Fear not,' he writes to Madame de Maintenon, "'that I should gainsay M. de Meaux. I shall never speak of him, but as of my master, and of his propositions, but as the rule of faith.'" Fenelon was at Cambrai, being regular in the residence which removed him for nine months in the year from the court and the children of France, when there appeared in his Explication des Maximes des Saints sur la vie intérieure, or Exposition of the Maxims of the Saints touching the inner life, almost at the same moment as Bossuet's Instruction sur les états d'oraison, or Lessons on States of Horizon. Fenelon's book appeared as dangerous as those of Madame Guillon. He himself submitted it to the Pope, and was getting ready to repair to Rome to defend his cause, when the king wrote to him, quote, I do not think proper to allow you to go to Rome. You must, on the contrary, repair to your diocese, whence I forbid you to go away. You can send to Rome your pleas in justification of your book. Fenelon departed to an exile which was to last as long as his life. On his departure he wrote to Madame de Maintenon, quote, I shall depart hence, Madame, to-morrow, Friday, in obedience to the king. My greatest sorrow is to have wearied him and to displease him. I shall not cease all the days of my life to pray God to pour his graces upon him. I consent to be crushed more and more. The only thing I ask of his majesty is that the diocese of Cambrai, which is guiltless, may not suffer for the errors imputed to me. 
i ask protection only for the sake of the church and even that protection i limit to not being disturbed in those few good works which my present position permits me to do in order to fulfil a pastor's duties it remains for me madame only to ask your pardon for all the trouble i have caused you i shall all my life be as deeply sensible of your former kindnesses as if i had not forfeited them and my respectful attachment to yourself madame will never diminish fenelon made no mistake in addressing to madame de maintenon his farewell and his regrets she had acted against him with the uneasiness of a person led away for a moment by an irresistible attraction and returning quite affrighted to rule and the beaten paths the mere love theory had no power to fascinate her for long the archbishop of cambrai did not drop out of that pleasant dignity the pious counsellors of the king were working against him at rome bringing all the influence of france to weigh upon innocent the twelfth fenelon had taken no part in the declarations of the gallican church in sixteen eighty two which had been drawn up by bossuet the court of rome was inclined towards him the strife became bitter and personal pamphlets succeeded pamphlets letters bossuet published a relation du quietisme or an account of quietism and remarks upon the reply of m de cambrai quote, i write this for the people he said in order that the character of m de cambrai being known his eloquence may with god's permission no more impose upon anybody fenelon replied with a vigour a fulness and a moderation which brought men's minds over to him quote, you do more for me by the excess of your accusations said he de bossuet than i could do myself but what a melancholy consolation when we look at the scandal which troubles the house of god and which causes so many heretics and libertines or free thinkers to triumph whatever end may be put by a holy pontiff to this matter i await it with impatience having no wish but to obey no fear but to be in the wrong no object but peace i hope that it will be seen from my silence my unreserved submission my constant horror of illusion my isolation from any book and any person of a suspicious sort that the evil you would fain have caused to be apprehended is as chimerical as the scandal has been real and that violent measures taken against imaginary evils turn to poison End of section sixty four